Healthy Hacker, Episode 5. Welcome to The Healthy Hacker, where we talk about programming, puzzles, memory fitness, diet, and everything else that you, a healthy hacker, find interesting. Today, I'm going to talk about my open source checklist. This is just a list of things that I run through every time I'm going to release or use an open source project. Before we get into that, though, let's do the workout of the week. The Workout of the Week is a section where I take a workout that I think looks fun and I tell you all about it. And sometime this week, I'm going to have to do it and hopefully you get a chance to try it out as well. So first off, last week's workout was super hard. So if you actually tried it, good job because holy crap, mountain climbers are way harder than I remember them being. So this week we got something a little bit different. No mountain climbers, I promise. This is going to be a 20-minute AMRAP And AMRAP stands for as many reps as possible. I'll explain that again in a second. So a 20-minute AMRAP of five push-ups, 10 sit-ups, and 15 air squats. So what this means is you're going to start a timer, and you've got 20 minutes, counting down from 20, 19, 18, all the way down to zero, to do as many rounds as possible of five push-ups, 10 sit-ups, and 15 air squats. Nice and simple. It's guaranteed to only take you 20 minutes, and you're going to get a good workout. So push-ups, I'm sure you're familiar with. Just cover those really quickly. You're going to start with your arms fully extended, right? And then come down and touch your chest on the ground, and then push yourself back up. That's a push-up. Pretty straightforward. The next exercise is sit-ups. We talked about these in another episode as well, but the key things to remember with a sit-up are on the way down, make sure you touch your shoulder blades on the ground, and then when you come back up to the top in the seated position, just touch your hands either on your toes or in front of your toes, whatever's more comfortable. And finally, the last thing, 15 air squats. This is just like it sounds. It's a squat in the air, no weight. These are all body weight exercises. So with an air squat, you're gonna be standing with your feet about shoulder width apart, maybe a little bit more than shoulder width, whatever feels comfortable, not too wide though. And you're gonna shove your butt back and pretend like you're sitting down in an invisible chair and you wanna make sure you get your thighs below parallel. So if you were to draw a line on your thighs, you want that line to be below the parallel line, less than 90 degrees. Get your butt down as far as you can and push your knees out to get super deep into that squat. So again, the workout is 20 minutes, doing as many rounds as possible of five push-ups, 10 sit-ups, and 15 air squats. So that's it. Have fun. Your final score for this is just the number of rounds that you were able to complete in the 20-minute period. And I'm going to post my score in the comments when I get a chance to do it this week as well. And now I get to talk about my open source checklist. What the heck is an open source checklist. Well, first off, if you go to github.com slash Chris Hunt, which is me on GitHub, you will see that I am basically an open source rock star. I'm just kidding. I'm actually not an open source rock star. In fact, that's kind of one of the points I want to make is that there's nothing special about me. I'm not special. Uh, A lot of the projects you see out there, a lot of the projects you use, they're not special. Everybody's just people. We all write code. Our code sucks. 
But the nice thing about open source is you get a lot of eyeballs on that code and you can make it a lot better. So looking at my projects, you'll see I just share a ton of stuff. And most of them are little projects that I find useful that do something very specific for me or it's something that I thought would be useful for everybody, so I put it on GitHub so other people can use it. But either way, those are both open source. There's no requirements to releasing an open source project. You can release whatever you want. It can be horrible. It can be great. It doesn't matter. But I'm going to talk about kind of a mental checklist that I run through before releasing one of my open source projects. And I kind of also use this checklist when I'm looking at a different open source project and deciding whether I want to use it or not. So kind of step number one, and this may be before we even get to the open source checklist, I don't know. This checklist thing is just something I made up because I needed a title for the podcast. But kind of step number one to making something for open source is to just come up with an idea. And sometimes we already have this idea. Maybe it's something you worked on recently and you just want to share it with other people. So that's a great way to open source something. You just upload that and let people go to town. But a lot of times maybe you have a trip coming up or you just kind of want to take a weekend and work on something new. You need to really think about a project because you don't already have something in the queue, right? So a little trick that I use is I have an app called Things and it's just a to-do app, but it does have an inbox section. So as I'm walking around outside or in my home or to the grocery store or whatever, if I have an idea that just randomly comes to mind, I can take out my iPhone real quick and just stick it in the inbox and not worry about it. The nice thing about that is when I get back to my computer, either at the end of the day or later in the week, I can process all those things that I just dumped into the inbox and stick them in a document I have that are just ideas, fun projects that I could start when I have a moment. So that's one way. Most of the ideas I get, I get from using that inbox. I just go through and take a look at all the stuff I've written down and pick something that looks fun. But maybe you're a little pressured for time. Maybe you got a long airplane ride coming up tomorrow and you want to pick something to work on. Another strategy that works for me is to just close my eyes and walk through a normal day. So I usually just start with today because it's the easiest thing to remember. And then I just kind of imagine a more generic day. And I, you know, it's literally walking through my day. So I'll close my eyes and imagine getting out of bed and then walking over and I'm cooking breakfast. You know, I'm making some eggs and making bacon. Now I'm making coffee and then I'm carrying that over to the table. And then I sit down at the table. Now I'm checking my email. And I try to think about all the stuff that's a pain during that process. And usually that'll give me a good project that I can work on. So a recent example, this was maybe a month ago, I'm imagining myself going through this process, sitting down at the table, eating breakfast. And I remembered recently, I wanted to change my desktop image. I went to a website, it's called simpledesktops.com. Awesome desktops, by the way, really clean stuff. Anyway, so I found a desktop I wanted to use and I downloaded it and set my desktop. Pretty easy, right? Well, I'm using Mac OS, and Mac OS has like a bajillion spaces. All my apps are running full screen on different spaces, and every single one of those spaces has their own desktop. So when I switched over to a different app, I noticed my wallpaper didn't change, so then I had to change it again. And then I switched over to another app, and my wallpaper there didn't change, so I had to change it again. And then when breakfast was done, I walked over to my desk that I stand at during the day, and I plugged in my monitor, and my external monitor again had a different desktop on it. And every single one of those spaces had a different desktop on it. And there was no way in macOS settings to just set the desktop on all the spaces. I had to go through every single space and set it manually to this new wallpaper I downloaded. It's a pain in the ass, right? So a great idea for an open source project right there because every single person using macOS has this same problem. And I know a lot of people like to use the same wallpaper on all their spaces because it's just 
weird to have a different wallpaper everywhere. You just want one beautiful wallpaper on all your spaces, right? So I made a gym. It's called Desktop. And now, every time I want to change my desktop, all I got to do is drag a desktop image into the terminal, and boom, every space, every desktop, everywhere is set to the new image. Totally awesome. I'm really stoked about it. And guess what? Other people are too, because it's a problem that I had, and it's a problem that everybody else has. So close your eyes, kind of walk through a typical day for you, and imagine all the stuff that sucks in your life, and build a project to make that better. Other people will have that same problem too. Another way that I get ideas for making open source projects is just taking stuff that I've worked on recently, other projects that maybe I can't open source, and I think about little nuggets that I can extract that would be useful. So a good example of this is the Discourse project. You may be familiar with online forums. Well, they've always been horrible, right? Discourse is an open source forum software. You can also use it as a mailing list. You can deploy it almost anywhere. They also have a hosted version that you can use. Now, again, this is an open source project, but what I really wanted is a little notification in my fave icon. Like if you use Gmail, you'll notice when you go to Gmail, up in your little tab, up where the fave icon lives, you'll see the number of unread messages. I really, really wanted that for discourse. So if I have a form open in a tab, I can see the number of unread messages up there in the corner. So if somebody sends me a private message or if I'm following a thread, I can keep track of that and not have to keep clicking over the tab to see what's going on. So I wrote a little bit of JavaScript and submitted a PR to discourse. And now you can see the number of unread messages on the fave icon if you turn that on. Well, I thought, why not take that little nugget of JavaScript and extract it so you can use it on other things? So I made a project called FaveCount. FaveCount is a JavaScript library that you can now include in any project you want, and it makes your fave icon dynamic. You can set the image dynamically. You can put a little counter on top of it dynamically. It's really simple. There's not a lot of code there, but it was really useful for discourse, and I've used it in a couple other places as well, and I could see why other people would like to use this in their projects. So that's another great way to think of ideas is just extract something you've made recently for something else. Just kind of pull it out into its own library and share that bit separately. And lastly, the final way that I think of ideas for open source projects is to just make something dumb, something funny. Maybe you got a new language you want to try. I don't know, but these projects I don't even think would be useful. They're just funny. A good example of this, I was browsing Twitter or something and I saw a link to this blog post about the Linux kernel source code. And in this blog post, they showed this graph. And this graph showed the number of swear words in the Linux source graphed over time. And it was hilarious because you could see them go up and down. You can see all the different words all graphed against each other. It was just funny, right? So I thought, I wonder how this graph would look for Rails or how it would look for these other three projects I'm working on. So I made a script. It's pretty hacky, but it just walks through all your Git history or as far back as you want it to and graphs all these swear words. And you can use other words if you want to, but by default, I'm using the same words that were on that Linux blog post. And then I bundled that script up into a gem and added it as a git command. So this, is, this gem is called git pissed. You can do gem install git pissed, and now you have a new git command. So you can do git log, git show, git commit, git pissed. That's gonna generate a graph of all the swear words over time in your repository. Totally useless project, but man, is it funny and offensive. So you post this kind of stuff on Hacker News and your stars on github.com are just going to fly through the roof. People love this stuff. It's super fun. I've gotten a lot of great feedback on it. And it's another great way to think of open source project ideas. Now, a question I get sometimes when I propose releasing something as open source is, 
why open source it? Why bother? Are people really going to get use out of this thing? Well, there's a lot of good reasons. The first reason and the reason why I open source almost everything I make is because I learn a ton of stuff. I get free feedback. I get free code reviews. I get free labor. People fix bugs and add features for me. But it's also nice just to share, right? It feels good. It's awesome to have people tweeting links to your library saying, hey, check out this thing. It's so awesome. Or going on GitHub and seeing everybody star in your repo, right? I have no idea what stars do, but they feel good for some reason when people star your repository. Anyways, it's just nice to have people involved in this thing that you made, right? Another reason that it's good to open source stuff is to give back. If you're a web developer, I'm a web developer, almost everything I use is open source. Everything. I mean, I do Ruby mostly and a little bit of JavaScript, right? Like every Rails developer, Ruby and a little bit of JavaScript. Ruby is open source. The web frameworks I use are open source. Rails, Sinatra, Petrino. Testing frameworks I use are open source. Minitest, which is included in Rails, RSpec. All the gems I use are open source. The things I use to manage my gems are open source. Bundler and Ruby gems. When I use JavaScript, I know that that's open source as well. ECMAScript, the language standard that JavaScript is based on, is an open standard. All the popular JavaScript libraries, jQuery, Node to run JavaScript on the server, those are open source. All the frameworks that you use in JavaScript, the MVCs, the MVCs, VVCs, the MVVVC, whatever's, Ember.js and Angular, those are all open source too. JavaScript package managers, Bower, NPM, open source. JavaScript testing frameworks, Jasmine, Mocha, 5,000 others, those are all open source. And beyond the languages, the web servers we run these things on, Unicorn, Puma, Thin, Nginx, Tomcat, those are all open source. And even the text editors, for most of us, are going to be open source. Vim, Emacs, maybe you're using GitHub's Atom that's recently been open sourced, and our version control systems, Git, SVN. Now, I'm on Mac OS, so my operating system is not open source, but if I wanted to, I could use Linux, which is also open source. So everything we use as a developer is open source. So why keep our code to ourselves? I'm sure at least one other person will find it useful, right? When in doubt, just open source the dang thing. So now you have a sweet project idea. You're ready to get to work. You know you want to open source it, because why not, right? So write your code, write your tests, do whatever it is that you do to make your thing. And now it's time to release it as open source. So here's where I'm going to talk about that imaginary checklist I run through before releasing a project as open source. So the very first thing I do is create a file in the root of my project called readme.markdown. Now, if you use GitHub on a regular basis, you already know what this file is. If you don't, this file is extremely important. It is the first thing that people see when they're checking out your project. This document does not need to be super complicated, but it's really important that it has a couple key sections. Always start the very top of your readme with the name of your project and a short Super exciting paragraph about why this project is awesome. Describe the problem you're solving, the way that you've solved it, and why your solution is better than X, Y, Z. You know, better than these other things that already exist out there. Think of this as a sales pitch, right? You spent all this time working on this project, and now you're sharing it with people. You want them to understand why you're so excited about it and why they should be excited about it too. People are going to love your projects if they're excited about them. So spend some time on that paragraph, make it a lot of fun, and then you got a few more sections 
that you should probably add to that readme. So number one for me is always usage. This section is short and sweet, but shows everything that somebody should need to know to install my project, whether that means copy a file to their project, or if it's a gem, I show the gem install command, or if it's a JavaScript library, I'll show how to add it to their package manager. It should be short and sweet. After you've shown them how to install it, then show them a few example commands. Not everything, this doesn't have to be a hyper detailed explanation of how to use your project, but show the stuff that they're gonna use most frequently or the stuff that's most exciting. If this is a command line tool you're building, it's also helpful in this section to show an output of your help command so people can see all the things that they might be able to do with your command line tool. So now you've knocked out those first two sections. You got that amazing intro that explains why you want to use the project, what it's all about, and then you got the usage section so people know how to use it. There's one more thing that you can stick up in the top part of your readme, and that is a set of badges. Now, some people hate these, some people like these. I'm kind of, I go back and forth on it, but as of right now, I really like badges. Badges are little dynamic images that go on the top of your readme that show you specific information. So I usually have two, sometimes three on my projects. One is Travis CI, and Travis CI is a continuous integration environment in the cloud. It's free for open source. So what that means is every time you push up commits to your project, it's gonna automatically run your test suite for you. And then this little badge in your readme, the Travis CI badge is gonna show whether your build is currently passing or failing. Useful information to have. Another badge I like to use is for Code Climate. Code Climate is another online tool that also looks at every commit you push to your project and it tries to measure code quality. You know, code quality is kind of an opinion thing, but Code Climate does pick out a lot of things that generally you really don't want in your project. So it points you towards heavy duplication or super long methods. All that kind of stuff is brought to your attention. The Code Climate badge on your readme shows your overall Code Climate GPA. The third badge that I use sometimes is a version number badge. This is useful for people who are just checking in on your project and wanna see, hey, has there been an update? They can look at that version number and see what's the current version number for this project. Pretty useful. A good place to get these badges is to just hop over to shields.io. This just shows every badge that you could possibly want in your readme and shows you the link that you need to use to paste that in. Now we're moving on to the next critical section of your readme and that is the contribution section. Usually this section is a separate document because it can get a little bit long, but you still wanna show it in your readme so that people know how to get there. The contributing section outlines everything that somebody is gonna need to do to make a change to your project, either by themselves or to have you make a change to the project. So this is stuff like, how do I create an issue? How do I create a pull request? How do I fork your repository so I have my own copy? GitHub has help documents on all those things, so you can just link to them. That's easy to do. Another important thing to have in your contributing document is how to set up the dev environment. For a lot of small projects, this is super easy to do. You just need to pull the repository, maybe run some kind of dependency management command. If I was using Ruby, I'd run bundle install and that's gonna install everything that's in the gem file and I'll be ready to go. If I'm using a JavaScript project, maybe I type Bower and that's gonna install all my JavaScript dependencies. If you have a larger project though, that's got a lot of moving parts, you probably wanna provide some kind of bootstrap or setup script that gets the dev environment set up automatically. The script is usually impossible to write, 
because you never know who's running it or what computer they're on. But if you're able to write it, that's great. Another option is to use something like Vagrant. And Vagrant is basically a scriptable virtual machine. You can create a thing called a Vagrant recipe that describes how to set up a new machine, everything that needs to be installed on it, everything that needs to be running, how to get your project running, how to get your test suite running. You can script all those things. And then when people want to contribute, they can just use Vagrant to spin up this virtual machine automatically that's all ready to go. It's got the dev environment all set up. And then when they're done working on your project, they just throw the virtual machine away and they didn't have to mess up their computer at all. The Discourse project uses this, so if you want to see an example, go check out Discourse on GitHub. Something else that's really nice to have in the contributing section is a list of starter issues or starter features. These are things that new people to the project might want to start with if they just want to start contributing. So a starter issue might be a bug that's easy to reproduce or maybe something that's easy to fix. It's low-hanging fruit that you leave for people who aren't familiar with the project so they can pick something up and be able to work on it. Starter features, these are kind of the same thing, except they're not bugs. They're a little bit harder because you're writing new code. You need to understand the code a little bit better, but it's the same idea. It's features designed for people who are first getting introduced to the project. If you wanna see a really good example of starter issues and starter features, check out brackets.io. They have a great contribution page that highlights those starter issues, starter features. They also have a very prominent display of all the contributors. So everybody that's contributed to their project can point to their name on a page and go, look, I do open source. It just makes you feel good. It's pretty awesome. And the last thing you want to make sure you have in your contributing section, and I kind of talked about this already when I mentioned development environment, is you want to show people how to run your test suite and make sure it's easy to run. So with Ruby projects, I always just make a rake task and I make the default task the test suite. So all people need to do is type rake and they can see that everything's green. This makes contributing so much easier because you don't need to worry if you broke something. You just run the test suite and you're fully confident that you didn't break anything that you weren't supposed to break. Now after the contributing section in the readme, we're now gonna add a section called changelog. And this is also going to be a link to another document because this will get longer and longer and longer as your project gets older. Now, the change log is just like it sounds. It's a log of changes for your project. Every single time you release a new version, you want to tell people what you added, what you deprecated, what you removed, and any bugs you fixed. Those are four different sections that should be in your change log. Added deprecated, removed, and fixed. No matter what you've done in this version you're releasing, make sure you always put each of those four sections in your change log. If you've added nothing, then just put nothing in the added section, but make sure that section's there. This helps people when they're using your project know that you didn't just forget to put something in there. It shows that you intentionally added nothing in this release. Think of your change log as release notes. These are nice little readable English sentences that are written to your customers of your project. This is not a Git log dump. This is not technical jargon. This is just a straight up, totally readable English explanation of the changes you made. So people who are depending on your project don't have to worry that by updating to this latest release, you're gonna break everything that they've written, right? This change log just needs to be nice and simple, to the point, 
plain English describing the things that were added, deprecated, removed, and fixed. If you want to hear people talk about this for an entire hour, then check out the Changelog podcast, episode 127, and all they talk about is the Changelog and the things you should have in the Changelog and why they should be in there and what the perfect Changelog looks like. After the Changelog section in the README, we're now to the last section, and that is license. Now, even though this is an open source project, you still need to provide a license. The words open source don't actually mean anything in the legal sense. There's still copyright law. People still don't understand how they can use your code, share your code, sell your code. They don't know if they can modify your code. All that stuff's just kind of undefined. So by putting the license right there in the readme, people can know immediately how your code can be used. Now, the most popular license I see, especially with Ruby projects and most things on GitHub, is the MIT license. This license is short and sweet. It basically says, do whatever you want with my code. I don't care. Just give me a little bit of attribution. That's it. Another license I see, especially with Linux-related projects, is the GPL. This license says... Feel free to use my code for whatever you want. Feel free to even sell my code. But make sure if you modify it or release it again that you make the source code available. If you use the GPL license, you're saying I always want the source code to be available. Anybody that uses my code needs to also make sure that their version of my source code is available. And the last license I see all the time is the Apache license. I actually have no idea what this license does. I do know it has something to do with patents, but eh. I don't use it. I don't see it that often. If you are kind of wondering what license you should use for your open source project, check out choosealicense.com, and that's going to show you the most popular choices and explain in layman terms what they do. So now that we've added our license, I'd say our readme is totally done. We got all the sections that we really need in there. We've told people why the project is great and why they want to use it. We've got a usage section that explains how to install it and the common commands they're going to want to use. We've got the contributing section and the contributing document that says, hey, this is how you set up the dev environment. This is how you run the tests. This is how you get stuff fixed and add new features. We have the change log section that describes each release we've made and all the stuff that we've added, deprecated, removed, or fixed. And then we have that license that says, here's how you can use and share my code. So now we can push our readme up to GitHub, make sure it looks okay. And the last thing that we wanna do is take our version number and bump it to 1.0.0. And this is more of a personal thing. I see people launch their project all the time at weird versions. Usually it's some sub-zero thing. It's like 0.0.2 or 0.3.1 or something like that. And I'm pretty sure the reason people don't launch their projects at 1.0 is because they're afraid or they're saying, hey, I don't really know what I'm doing right now. I, I might change the way this works in the future. And I don't, you know, I don't want you to actually use this yet. It's not ready. But you know what? If it's good enough for you and you're having a good time using it, make the dang thing 1.0.0. That is the whole reason of version numbers. If you're using version numbers correctly, and by correctly, I mean check out semantic versioning 2.0. I'll put a link to the show notes. You don't need to worry about people using your code because if you change your code, you'll change the version number correctly so that you don't break projects that people are trusting you with. Most version numbers have three different positions. There's that first number, the one, and that's the major version number. Every time you make a change to your project that is not backwards compatible, meaning you've broke something that people might be depending on, you need to change that version. 
The second version number is called the minor version. This version number you change every time you add a backwards compatible feature. So you've added some new command or some new route or some new file, something you've added something that's not gonna break the way people are currently using it. That's the minor version. That last, that third number is called the patch or the bug fix version. This number you increase every time you fix a bug in a backwards compatible way. By using the version number this way, you don't need to worry about launching at 1.0.0 because if you make a change later to the API, you change the major version number and that's gonna tell everybody that's depending on your project, hey, I made a change. They'll look at your change log and see what that change was and then they'll decide whether they wanna update or not. So always launch your project at 1.0.0. And now you're done. Tell people about your project. Send a tweet, go to Hacker News, maybe post a link. If your project is crazy offensive or hilarious, it'll do really well on Hacker News. Another idea if you want to get people using it right away and you're not sure how to do that is to think about all the ways that you hear about new libraries. How do you hear about other projects that other people start? And try to get your project there. So a good example is Cooper Press. Peter Cooper runs a ton of newsletters. Newsletters for JavaScript, Ruby, HTML5, and he's got subscribers, lots of subscribers every week that read his newsletter. And in that newsletter, it talks about new code that's been released, new screencasts people can watch, changes that have been made in the web world. If you send Peter an email saying, hey, check out this project I made, this is why it's amazing, and put a link in there, odds are he's gonna read it over and check out that readme that you worked on. And if your readme is amazing, like it's supposed to be, and Peter thinks it's gonna be interesting to all his subscribers, he's gonna put it in his newsletter and you're gonna get a ton of traffic. So think about all the ways that you hear about projects and get your project out there so other people can start using it. And that is my open source checklist. It's pretty straightforward and mostly about the readme. You can find the show notes for this week's episode at healthyhacker.com slash five. And please, if you have any questions or comments, leave me a voicemail at healthyhacker.com slash voicemail.